Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Henry Rollins was the legendary frontman for hardcore punk band Black Flag in the 1980s, then his own Rollins band into the 90s and early aughts. Rollins also has written more than two dozen books, appeared in movies such as Heat, Lost Highway, and Bad Boys 2, on TV and Sons of Anarchy, as well as hosting series for National Geographic and the History Channel, and putting out several spoken word specials. Rollins currently hosts a weekly radio program on KCRW and co-stars in the new sci-fi series Deadly Class. His newest talking show, Keep Talking Pal, premiered on Showtime in 2018 and is available now everywhere. There's a lot to get to, so let's get to it! Henry Rollins, it is a pleasure to welcome you into, oh, the, into you. the studio here. Um, you know, I live in New York and I, as I was coming out here to LA, I was telling, uh, my friends were asking, so who are you going to be interviewing while you're out here? And I list a bunch of names and every single friend, when I hit Henry Rollins, they're like, oh, wow, you got to tell him. Huh. Oh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. So last things first, one of my, one of my best friends, uh, wanted to tell me slash remind you, uh, it's the 25th anniversary of Woodstock 94. 50th of the original Woodstock. And as he remembers it, uh, he has a very um, vivid memory of Rollins' band coming out, the storm clouds coming in, thundering down, and then clearing as soon as your set ended. Yeah, we in, in a way, we, we kind of brought the rain. It was crazy. We went out on stage, and the sky broke, and this rain came down, so everyone gets covered. In water, and there's like hundreds of thousands of people there. So the the people directly in front of you, everyone's moving. You know, it's a youth uh, a youth frenzy. And right. thankfully, there's photos of it because I, I, I didn't think anyone would believe me when I told them. There's so much human commotion that they start steaming, and there's so many people moving. They created a literal cloud over them. Like a cloud that you can see, but can the camera see it? And I have photos where you see this cloud that was created by these people. Meanwhile, the wind is moving around and the sheer amount of humanity in front of you, the wind would blow towards us and it was the smell of human perspiration. And you realize you're just breathing. That's what you're breathing Mm -hmm. because there's so many people. You're like – Wow. And it was like 98.6 degree armpit. Right. And it was just deep summer sweat. I've been in, I've, I've performed at a ton of festivals. Yeah. Anything from like eight to 30,000 people, as you do. It's not like we're headlining or anything. There's people are just there. But this was hundreds of thousands of people. And just, uh, the, 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 just the view, your eyes ran out of capacity to see. Before the people ran out. And then, you know, an hour later, you're 
you're done. And you are taking uh, – we took a helicopter in and a boat to get out because <laughs> uh, they just have to get you through the people and the, mm-hmm. the gear goes on some little river, meets your truck down the road. It was Right. There's uh, a lot of logistics uh, interesting, in something like that. Interesting day because on our own, we're like an 800 to 1,500 person a night band. So uh, that day we were like, you know, Queen at Wembley or something. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you feel any sort of symbolism in – in the clouds, the storm clouds, and the people clouds. No, no, I'm, I'm not. It wasn't like God speaking to you. Go, this is what Henry Rollins represents. No, I'm sadly not, uh, not at all spiritually inclined. I'm like a plank of wood when it comes to all that stuff. Birth, death. It's all just, it's just all just human humanity to me. Um, it was a lo- We were lucky to get the gig. Um, and I'm glad we were at that one because the one that came later, right? Where they had you know people getting assaulted and just uh, fire fires and yeah, it was a bad. It looked like you know from no Woodstock '94 was the friendly one. Yeah, and I actually I was living in New York at the time, and I was working out at the Crunch Gym down the street from Tower Records, Lower East Side. Both are gone now. Yeah, and Michael Lang. The guy who did the first one was in there, and he looks the same. And he walks up. He goes, Henry Rollins, right? I said, yeah. He said, I, I, I'm the Woodstock guy. I'm like, whoa, you are? Because he's in the movie Woodstock of the first one, right. which I saw a bunch of times as a kid because Jimi Hendrix is in it. And it was interesting. to so how would you like it? I said, it was okay. It was cool. Thank you. But it was just interesting to see him, like, you know, a T-shirt and a sweatpants at a gym. You're like, wow, it's the Woodstock guy. So that was just a, one of the more interesting aspects was like two years later, I run into this dude. I love I love how you're such a fanboy. Yes. And it comes through in all of your specials. And it's something that I deeply identify with because I guess my job in a way, I get to be a fanboy. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I'm a critic and I write critical things. But in situations like this in podcasts, I'm not famous, but I get to I get to fanboy out on all sorts of yeah, I creative fan, people. I fanboy out. I mean, I I made music for many years. Uh, punk rock allows the fans to you know be in a band, and so I went from fanboy of like local DC bands that I you know I grew up in Washington right. DC, and suddenly I'm in a band with our you know forty second songs. And then I'm in Black Flag, and that would be from like October 80, I was in a little band, and then by summer of 81, I'm out here in Los Angeles from Washington, D.C. in this big punk rock band. And so I was a fan who got in a band. I've never lost the fan thing, and so I don't make music anymore, so I'm just fan with a radio show i write about music i interview musicians i collect records like uh like they're going out of style and so i'm more comfortable as a fan but meanwhile people are fans of me it happens because at this point people recognize the face or whatever their grandfather bought my record and so i i get all of that dude no way i'm like yeah and I see someone I recognize walk by, like, whoa, look at, like, I have his records. And so mm-hmm. I've never really left that kind of point of view of, like, oh, man, I love your band. And for me personally, I enjoy it because it keeps me grounded. Like, people like what I do, and that's that's great. But I'm such a fan of other people. 
it allow, I don't get too stuck on myself because I'm very busy. Like there's a woman who makes music. I, I play her on my radio show a lot. I've been playing her for years. She wrote me yesterday out of the blue saying, hey, you know, thank you for playing me on the radio. I'm like – and she makes like cool independent music. She's yeah. really fantastic. And I'm like, wow. I felt like Elvis had written me. And, and I was like, wow, I'm 57 and this woman's like, you know, like, like 30 something, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I'm such a fan. And I really like that I never lost that because I've met people who became famous or whatever and they kind of bought in. Yeah. And now they're like kind of weird and not fun to be around or that, kind of miserable. That's the thing is we get older. You, you, you see that happen to, yeah. to your associates. Yeah. And it's just a matter of not buying in. You know, the, I think longevity in whatever aspect of holly, uh, of entertainment you're in, comedy, acting, whatever it is, you'll see that the ones who last, like, you know, you, you've met, you know, old, your old school types, be they actors, musicians, comedians, whatever. Why are they still drawing people? You know, why are they still outdoing it? Guy doesn't need money. Like, well, what is Mick Jagger still doing out there? Like, what dollar has he not touched on this planet? What arena has he not played? Ooh, what stadium has he not played? Fifteen times. Yeah. He must really love the music. Like, what kept Don Rickles going until he finally keeled over at 118 years of age? He really likes being up there. And so what, what makes it – what keeps you out there is that you really love the what you do. It's not about the fame or the money. Or what it, drugs or whatever else. It's really about I wake up every day to do this thing. And I've done movies with like big actors. I'm, a, I'm not I'm a fake actor. I just kind of BS my way into movies. But every once in a while, I'm around like a Jeff Bridges or an Al Pacino. And why are they still doing it? Why do they keep getting hired over and over and over again? When you see them on set, they are dead serious about that scene. I mean, they are so in it. And it's not about – the bank account or the private jet or whatever it is about that scene at that moment you realize they're the real thing and being a fan of other people being not so interested in myself all the time has allowed me to kind of keep it real because i'm not all that interested in what i'm doing i'm way more interested in what you're doing how important is it then to be um for a lack of a better term straight edge well, for me, I mean, that's C- considering what, that that term came from from your friend Ian. It came. Ian came up with it, and immediately it just became this. Ask ten people what it is, and you'll get ten distinctly yeah. different answers. That's why I say, for lack of a better, right? Well, for me, just not getting high. I, mean, I don't drink. I don't smoke. But there's all these other rules. You you can't eat meat. You can't have sex. You can't. There's all these things that these people wrote onto the the sandwich board. <laughs> And I'm like, well, I do that one, that one, that one, and that one. Then you can't be here. I never asked to be here. Right. I never – Straight Edge was like a song Ian wrote. It's like – here's like the, the one-minute uh, background on that. We used to go see Arena Rock, Ian and I. We've been best friends since we were 12, and we're like now still best friends. Arena Rock was what was around. I mean you weren't even here yet. So we were seeing literally Les Zeppelin, great, uh-huh. uh, Van Halen, Ted Nugent, Aerosmith. It was what was down the road at the big box. It was like $12 ticket and you went. And we're watching Led Zeppelin one time and it was as good as you hoped it would be. It was fantastic. The dude next to us is asleep. Like he's, he's high. He's not going to remember the gig. Like really? 
Like, damn, man, it's Led Zeppelin. Right. Like, Jimmy Page has the bow out. He's doing the whole thing. Like, And you slept through it. And Ian and I just looked at each other and went, that can never be us, man. And we were the ones getting up at like 5 in the morning on Saturdays to go skate in this place before the guards come and kick you out of the parking lot. We were like go-getters. And so anything that slowed us down, like beer, marijuana, whatever – cool if you want to do it. It's just we can't because we're moving too fast. And so that's that's kind of where we were at with it. For myself, I've been drunk about four times in my life. I just never liked it. It was like super depressing. Tried, you know. Uh, it's not good if you're dealing with depression too. No, and I'm depressed anyway. Yeah. And like I look at anything and I get depressed. I mean, <laughs> like and I've found almost. That's any, just 2019. Like, well, like, <laughs> That's just, <laughs> well, almost any stimulant okay, right. has, has this effect where I get depressed. Where like, you're like, oh, this will make you happy. Mm-hmm. Not me. And so that's just my body chemistry plus anything but aspirin. And so it was never a thing I wanted to do. And I come from the, at this point, the punk rock scene from Los Angeles. In the 1980s, heroin came through this town Mm. like they wanted all these kids dead. It was like COINTELPRO V2, you know, 2.0. And all these people you knew were getting hooked on heroin. We'd leave. Black Flag would leave for like these epic tours. No, there's no internet. You don't know what's going on back <laughs> on the home front. You come back and you're like, oh, he's dead. She's in jail. He killed himself. He got arrested. And it, heroin. And that's – I realized later like, oh, they're just trying to kill us off. And so to me, there's so many reasons that I don't do that stuff yet I would never call myself straight edge because then you buy into all these annoying people right. running around going, you got to put that down. You're like, I don't have to do anything. Like, leave me alone. I used to romanticize alcohol as a writer thinking it would fuel the craft. Yeah, it doesn't. And until it until it worked against me. Yeah. And, and part of the fear when people who do use – sober up is they have a fear that they won't be creative anymore but what i've found is that being alert and being open to everything makes the art so much clearer and better well that's what any art good art is is someone who is perceptive but differently you know you look at a sky they look at a sky and they paint this thing you're like what's that the sky you're like whoa (laughs) you're nuts no i'm artistic what are you taking I was born with this. Yeah. And and to me, and this is my opinion, the real thing doesn't need drugs. Like Jimi Hendrix, like one guitar, one distortion pedal. It's not the pedal. It's the guy. It's not even the guitar. You could give him anything with six strings. He's going to make it work. Like when Jaco Pastorius, like, what kind of bass does he use? Dude, it's not the bass. <laughs> it's the man. It, right. It's the player. And so when people, like, I'll take these drugs. Or Michael Jordan, it's got to be the shoes. It's, right. It wasn't the shoes. No, it's not the shoes. It's the guy. And so with drugs, that's what Julian, when Charlie Parker, you mm-hmm. know, the great sax yeah. player, amazing. Um, all these people are like, well, I'll take drugs like Yardbird, like Charlie Parker. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's not the drugs that makes me good. I'm good, and I, I practice all day. Like, it's not the dope, and the dope eventually Kills him. killed him off. Yeah. And, and so that romantic thing, that's how I think you can lose like 7 to 15 years of your life and get nothing done. And I, I think what sometimes happens is, as Bukowski said, and he said it, not me, most people who write books shouldn't. And there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of chaff out there, not a lot of wheat. Yeah. And so if you're not that good – 
a lot of people might try and blunt that sad fact uh, that you're not Tolstoy uh, with stimulants because the, the the cold sober facts are awful. Your manuscript sucks. <laughs> that's that's and I've written 27 books. Most of them suck. I own the company, so uh, no one's saying no to me. I get no rejection slips, uh, so I don't live in the real world of publishing. Well, but uh, DIY, yeah, always. But um, I think drugs plus art, you know, it, it often it burns the artist up faster. You know, it's too bad they buy into this thing and they just like light themselves on fire. No, uh, one of the beauties of the internet is that it captures some of our younger. Days mm. and I was pleased to see an interview with Black Flag in like 1981, where you're already taking over the interview of this young kid who's trying to interview you as a young kid. There's, yeah, there's also, an, but there's another video that was even more uh, foreshadowing, where it's a it's a live concert. But it starts with you reading a passage of Henry Miller. Yeah, that was summer 1984. I think it was Leeds, England. We were playing some mini festival, like in a bar, and I read the last, like the last page of Black Spring by Henry Miller, and like much to the punk rockers' dismay. <laughs> and uh, it was just one of those things where they were acting everything we did. They're like flipping us off. We're like, okay, well then this is going to take all day, so we're just going to play. For the next four and a half weeks. <laughs> and I just ran to the dressing room, grabbed my Miller book and read this thing. And that got made into a, a, a thing that's on the Internet. That yeah. Show. But that was uh, me at age 23. But uh, to anyone who, you know, who watched your newest Showtime special, hmm. Keep Talking Pal, or is buying it now that it's available for sale. Thank you for that. Uh <laughs> People there, there might be some people who who still haven't grasped the concept of you as spoken word because they associate you with your youthful punk rock. Phase. Some do. I mean, I, even I, though all of this product, all of these twenty seven books, all of these spoken word films exist, there might be still people coming to the table going, "Oh, isn't he the the um, black flag guy?" I'm not trying to argue with you, but I would posit that at this point. Yeah. 2019, I have not made a record since 2003. So right. me and music is a long time ago. The records sold fine in their time. No one's asking me to be on VH1. They, they, anyone there have never heard of me. Uh, they don't know music on VH1 well, well, anymore. Well, they, they, but they, what I'm saying is they don't know me because right. I'm not a multi-platinum, Super Bowl, halftime entertainment guy. Right. So what I'm saying is a lot of people – You should have done the halftime show from all the reviews I'm seeing. Uh, it was uh, pretty <laughs> cringe-inducing. Actually, I can show you a video of me and someone else watching. I'll show you. <laughs> I was at a half, I was at a Super Bowl party and I mm -hmm. actually uh, we we filmed it and put our, <laughs> flipped it off anyway. Um, what what I'm saying to you is I've I've done a lot of talking shows. You're separated yourself from your past. Well, the talking shows draw anywhere from 500 to 2,500 people a night. Mm -hmm. So I think when you say it as talking show, I find it hard that you would draw that many people to a talking show. Well, I just get up there and talk. <laughs> they show up. But like, I don't call it comedy because I'm not mm -hmm. funny all the time. Like when I was in North Korea, the stories I took from there or like the times I, would, I was in Afghanistan with the USO, mm -hmm. there's nothing funny 
about Kabul when I was there. There was nothing funny about Pyongyang. There's nothing funny about the time I was in South Sudan or northern Uganda meeting kids abducted by the Lord's Resistance Army who were made like hack their parents to pieces. These kids are destroyed. So I'm telling those stories along with stuff that pops up like in the, the, the keep talking pal mm-hmm. thing where like there's laughs and then there's like not laughs. And so when someone says spoken word, I'm like, that doesn't sound like a gig I'd want to go to. Stand up comedy. Well, I don't have those beats. Like mm-hmm. if I did a normal Henry show at a comedy venue, I'd get an ashtray upside the head because that's not what you pay your 20 bucks to see. You're like it's been a long day. You want to come in and laugh. I'm not going to make you laugh all the time. And so when people say, what do you, what is it that you do? I talk. So I guess it's a talking show. My name's on the marquee. You show up or you don't. But I've never put any rules or regulations on it. And I've been doing these shows since 1983. And so what I'm, the point I'm making is at this point, after hundreds of thousands of words published, uh, op-eds written in major newspapers all over the world, columnists for different magazines, uh, winning awards for my writing and documentaries, and series I've hosted, screenplays I've written and gotten made, et cetera, et cetera. The music thing is is part of what I've done. But at this point, I don't think anyone goes, you're the music guy. You do anything else? I think at this point, they're like, wow, I saw you in Sons of Anarchy, man. I hated your character, but I know you're just acting. So because I've done a lot, a lot, a lot of other stuff. You're in a new sci-fi series, uh, Deadly? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in that. Yes. And so. So you're in a new thing that people can identify. Yeah. But with the, you the, and, what and I, you'll have to explain it. Well, I actually did yeah. other things before this. Well, well I can't, yeah, but, but that's the, I don't really have that conversation much. Mm. I mean, at this point, people come up and go like, my son said you did music <laughs> where they know me from the He Never Died movie mm-hmm. or my History Channel show. Or my radio show on KCRW. They go, you were so you were one of the guys in Black Flag. Like, yeah, huh? Well, which record are you on? My 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 son has some best of, cringe. Um, <laughs> and so, I come from. I have a high school education. I come from the minimum wage working world of the late seventies, early eighties, and so I know who I am. In that, probably not the guy for the job. So I show up for kind of anything. Because everything is interesting to me. And so that's how I've gotten, like, you know, movies and TV. I must have something uh, enough to get hired. But for the most part, I just say yes and, and want to do stuff. So it's basically a rabid interest and a disinterest in sitting still, sitting on the couch, or having a life that's uneventful or in any way normal. Well, you have a distinct point of view and an intensity that you have in 2019 that you had in 1979. Kind of. Yeah. I mean – And so that I, makes you not enigmatic, not eccentric. You just – I'm doing what I want for the You're you. Part. Yeah. You're Henry Rollins. I'm me for a living. Um, <laughs> in the years – no one else can be you. Hopefully not. But um, I have become as an older guy because I'm, I'm leaning on 60 so hard as saying, ow, get off me. Um I, I think I'm less judgmental than I used to be. I was, you know, it, very insecure mm-hmm. and easy to rattle. And so it was easy for anyone to get the better of me. Like, you know, you get a you get a bad review as you do in this business. You get a bunch of them, or at least I do. Um, do you read your reviews? Me, no. I haven't read one in 21 years. But, you know, like that 
keep talking pal mm-hmm. thing. Apparently, the hate mail was intense. Huh. Especially, um, I saw two emails came into the manage, uh, my manager's website, and it was about they were about two things from that thing, from that uh, stand up thing. One was where I said, you know, men have been running the world since we crawled oh, out right. of caves. We have to get rid of the men. So we need to, uh, you know, carpet bomb a couple of NASCAR events and like wipe out a few uh, million men mm-hmm. for women to be able to breathe. I don't think any NASCAR event's going to get carpet bombed. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. I don't want it to happen. Mm-hmm. It's humor. Maybe, it's the fart, maybe the fart version of carpet bombing. Well, <laughs> it, it, I got letters like the next time you want a, you want a cop to save you, and like uh, I hate you, like sincere madness, wow. anger, like like they really want to find me in a parking lot and 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 crush me. And the other anger was that I'm friends with RuPaul. Yeah, but he, you mentioned that in the special. Well, well, but that's where the, the other vein of hate mail came from. So there was hate on top of the hate that you described. Well, uh, you, <laughs> you want to kill a bunch of white men. They took that seriously. Uh-huh. And so we, we want to kill you for that because they, they took us seriously. And you're friends with a gay guy. And, and they, I'm not going to curse on your podcast but you know lover right. and oh right right yeah and you're like wow and so those are the two basic critiques Re- reading two to eight hundred letters like that i don't know how it serves me in that i still think the carpet bombing thing is funny and rupaul is still one of the most amazing people i've ever met so you're not changing my mind on any of this stuff. Right. I just don't want to meet you in a Walmart parking lot in Nebraska <laughs> on a Saturday night and get beat up. So that's one way in which being an artist in America in 2019 is different than being an artist in America in 1979. Mm. Is the the audience interaction well, yeah. is obviously different well, because well, of the digital age. Social media makes everything immediate. Like, um, I'm a, one of the more boring people you'll ever meet. I just work. You know, I'm always working on something. Where does that work ethic come from, by the way? Um, everything from my genetic traits to my parents who were both, like, the, you know, up at some insane amount of the same insane time, mm-hmm. already out the building doing something. Like, my father would do double shifts all the time. He's a economist. So he's like, you know, Brooks Brothers starch suit downtown, crunching numbers. My mom worked for the government, which is okay. – so you were a Beltway kid, uh, definitely. Yeah, I was like I lived inside the Beltway. My mom worked like in the in the our government, like in it, um, for pretty much her entire career. My dad was a big numbers guy, PhD in economics, so he's downtown at some firm, water utility rates, oil stuff. He's like you know expert witness, flying all over America, testifying. You know, big brain. But um, w- the point I'm making is. Um, I I just come from this high metabolism, high intensity thing, and the machine needs to keep running. Yeah, and as far as anything I've done, kind of pushing against something. When when you're starting out in the world of releasing things, and it's punk rock in Reagan era America, you're gonna piss someone off pretty quickly, and so the. What I do in 1979 and what I do in 2019, it probably angers the same people. And I do all of this stuff kind of sort of for the same reason. 
You know, my lighter fare work is like being in a film. And I get, you know, you're in a movie. You sold out. I, I get it every possible way. I saw you in National Geographic. What's up with that? Uh, interesting work in India. That's what that was. Hey, you go do your thing. I'll go do mine. Uh, and so I've been kind of getting bucketed since I was young, but at least it's not because of my neo-Nazi past or my yearbook photo in the Klan outfit. I don't have any of that. I just uh, have a lot of interviews where I called out the LAPD or I called out Reagan or Bush or Trump or, 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 and stood up for, you know, LGBT people, women people, brown people, and uh, you get pushback on all of it. Did that also come from your parents, or was that in rebellion to your parents? No, the, to be to be questioning of why society is working or not working the way it should. To the left of my mother's Joan Baez in a wall. To the right of my father is like nothing. Mm-hmm. And how they got together, uh, who knows? Just two good-looking, smart people, maybe. But they could not have you know like two Siamese fighting fish in one martini glass. And so, living in Washington D.C. in the '60s where the white-black tension was intense, where you could smell the tear gas or the smoke from downtown on fire or rioting. That was my experience as a little kid, National Guard and with sandbags around them on the corners in my neighborhood, hippies rolling cars in the street in front of me. I mean, things on fire. I'm not saying I'm like running through the streets like, ah. When, so when things like uh, Reverend King's March on Washington was happening, you were a small kid. Did yeah, you know? My, my mom would go to all of them. Mm-hmm. She'd get the And your babies. dad would keep you locked in the – No, they got divorced as soon as I arrived. So oh. I, my mom went to like all those marches. I sat in the park one day with my mom and Pete Seeger was somewhere. We all sang Michael Rowe, your boater shower in Kumbaya. I mean, my mom went to all of that. I got mm-hmm. dragged to some of it. What I'm making is Sorry. this. Yeah. As a little kid, when you're getting called cracker, whitey, bama, and your bike is getting taken and your bus fare gets stolen, your lunch gets stolen because the, the black kid took it away, you can go one of two ways. Yeah. You can say, well, all black people are bad. Or you can go, we got a problem here. I want to understand it better. Thankfully, my mom got me on that train of thought. Like, I go, mom, what am I doing? Like, why am I getting beat up? And she said, okay, here's what's going on in the world. She, she, as much as you can give it to a nine-year-old. Here's, yeah. And these kids, they don't know what they're saying. They don't hate you. They're just hearing it. A lot of bad things being said these days. Just stick your hand out, smile, and try and be, make friends with everybody. Meanwhile, my father's informing me, well, you like those kids doing that? Like you got to learn how to, how to hit them back, and 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 so I went my more my mother's way as far as my politics, but I was politicized as an, at an early age because the time I was young in the city I was living in it was yeah. inescapable because politics was being done to you as a third grader. Like kids are like walking up and hitting you in the face and taking your stuff, and I, I'm not a tough guy, so you. When I'm nine, you walk up and hit me in my face. I piss my pants. Like you lose your bladder control. Like you watch urine go down your leg and you are trying to stop it. And your body's just like, ah, and everyone's laughing. White boys pissing. And that never made me hate black kids. It made me hate racism. And so I knew my mom was right. It was like one of the most profound thoughts to have as a little kid. And all of that and having gay bosses at my high school after school jobs. And they would tell me like what it was like to be gay in the 50s and how you like your own dad will kill you. I mean like you, you, the town will kill you, how you have to sneak around. 
all of that politicized me. So I'm like, okay, you, you can't hate these people and you, you can't be part of a problem. And that informs where I travel, how I write, what I say on stage, what I did with music. My entire POV was kind of formed in those days and my adult life has been an extrapolation of that going forward. And like at, like you say in your newest special, what's different now is that now for the longest time you were on the forefront because there weren't other people beside you. But now, as you say, every one has to be in the game. Yeah, words matter. Like in, when Trump became our new president, I was on tour. I was in D.C. on stage 91, and I watched my audience all kind of keel over. I'm like, I'm bombing. But they had their cell phones on. I didn't know the guy was winning. I was yeah. on stage trying to keep it going, and everyone's like looking at their phones and looking at me going, wow, everything's different now. Yeah. Um, by the time I got back out here to L.A. in December for a run of shows I was doing here, I was kind of ruggedly optimistic. Like, okay, folks, look, uh, obviously there's going to be a real push on gay people, women people, brown people. So we got to really uh, stand up to this. So it's going to be – it's go time. This is what Joe Strummer trained you for. So let's get busy. Like more benefits, more sticking up for women's reproductive health rights, uh, sticking up for your gay friends like because it's coming. But we're going to beat it because we're better. We're smarter. We're cooler. Our jokes are better. And so um, what's – and that's how I go at it. I'm kind of optimistic about America in that I think we're in a really tough place. But I think a lot of people, the, the blinders have been taken from their eyes and they see that there's two ways to go. One way is looks really awful to me. It's backwards. It's awful. And the other way is way cooler, harder lift, but better. <laughs> what's, what's No pain, no gain. But yeah, what's different, like when I was young starting out and now – you you talked about social media. Yeah. The immediacy of information is insane because if you get it wrong and tweet that out, then literally millions of people can get the wrong information. So when you have a president who tweets out poorly informed, partially informed, or just flat out wrong information, he's the freaking president of the United States. Everyone's reading that thing. He says something that's provably false. Everyone hears it, and it can be used. Well, the president said it, then I'm going to go out there and, and do it because he said it. Like, how are you going to argue? Like, who's right? You were the president. Well, this time I am. <laughs> and, and so that's where social media, it kind of like any technological advancement, it can hamstring you. And I live in a uh, – I told this to a person the other day. I live in a hypersensitive, hyperreactive world in that I say something to someone, Facebook. I do a photo with a guy at the airport, Facebook. One time my manager, we say, oh, wrote me. Cause and I'm you like, don't know who that person was that you took a photo with necessarily. I, I, say, I say yes to it and I don't know where it goes. Right. Like what am I going to do? Say no because that goes to Facebook. <laughs> He's a jerk. Yeah. And so – um, I'm a very boring person. I just work. So Friday, my big Friday night, I go to a Starbucks and write for two hours. Woo! You know, in my Mazda 6. <laughs> and one night my manager wrote me. She said, you're at a Starbucks. I went, okay, fine. How would you know? She sent me a photo. Someone snuck up behind me, took a photo of me and what I was writing and posted it. I'm like, yeah, that's the world I live in. And so – these days, it's, I think, really easy to get things wrong because everything is so touch-sensitive. And so this is why 
Words are really – you have to – if you're going to get listened to, I think you must choose your words carefully. I'm not saying being politically incorrect and censoring yourself. I'm saying making really good choices because now everyone's checking out what the other person is doing. So what what impact does that have on art and artists? The good good Do, question. Does every artist have to be have to have that added heightened responsibility? I think no. Um, I get asked that question a lot. Like, is it a musician's responsibility to write the the anti-president song or the I, I, can I, a comedian just tell jokes or do, does every joke have extra meaning well, now? I, I say for rock and roll, if you want to write about cars and girls and never have a political or civil rights component to your music, that's fine with me. I buy those records too, actually. Um, the the comedy 2019 awarenesses in comedy is a far more interesting conversation. Like some comedians, like I don't want to go to a university because I can't be myself on stage because the censor police come in and the the whatever cops come in and tell me don't say that, don't think that. And I I hate censorship. I love the First Amendment. Screw all y'all. And I've heard comedians I respect say I'm never doing a college campus again because these people are uptight. That's an interesting argument to have. I see where they're coming from. I also see where a lot of people would also say, you know, I'm really tired of hearing you say the word fag every third sentence. I'm just sick of it. My dad is gay. It hurts. Like, oh, you need a safe space, snowflake? I don't need a safe space. I'm not a snowflake. I'm in a civilized society and I'm trying to evolve in my own lifetime. I'd love it if you came with me. But if you want to hang out in the, in the ooze with, the, with your twitching primordial tail and your glistening gills flapping on your neck, you go right ahead. The rest of us, we're going this way. And so I think some comedians may be caught in a time that is – Yesterday, but that yesterday is like a long time ago, even if it was literally yesterday. <laughs> right. And I think that's symptomatic of this age we live in was like, you know, 24 hour news. So you have to have all kinds of BS in there. 24 hour everything. And I think hum a lot of young people are just like, come on. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm telling some gay jokes. Yeah, but you know, it's just not funny to me anymore. Oh, you people don't know how to have fun. No, we have fun all the time. Just not with you. And so I think, hey, things are changing. I mean, look how much America has changed since the last 10 years. What's it going to be like 20 years from now? What's it going to be like next year or 2020? And so I think comedians in some ways, they're kind of the front line a lot of times and they get the, the, the kind of full weight of the, the, the wrath of zeitgeist. You know, where they – like if there's change coming, they get it right in the teeth and they got a deal. Like I watch old – like you watch old uh, episodes of Saturday Night Live. Wow. You probably can't do that anymore. I was talking to uh, Max Brooks, uh, son of Mel. Son of Mel, yeah. Yeah, amazing. I, I was a voice on that. Oh, uh, World War Z. Yeah, yeah, you did the audio. Yeah, and so he was there First one day podcast. for one of the sessions. I'm like, mm -hmm. whoa. And like, you know, he knows who I am. I know who he is and his mm -hmm. dad, of course. And I'm I'm old. So Blazing Saddles and all that, that's 
the movies I went to see over and yeah. over. I've probably seen that film 20 times. It's a tour bus favorite. But it's also a classic. I, yes, it's a comedy classic. But look at the language in that. Oh, yeah. And so Max said to me, he said, you know, I said, Blazing Saddles, man. What do you reckon? And he said, you couldn't make that movie this was like 2013 or something years ago. He said, you couldn't make that movie now. And when you watch, I have the SNL DVD box sets. You watch some of that humor. And you're like, wow, them days is over. I mean, I'm still laughing, but that's probably a little too coarse for America in 2019. Although some, uh, some fans of quote unquote conservative art will argue that their sitcom needs to be on the air because they're the new version of All in the Family, which was a show, another show that people said you couldn't do today. Yeah. Although I think those people are just taking the Archie Bunker character and making him the protagonist. Yeah, I mean, I... I hate to broad brush anything because with humans, you kind of can't because we're all so weird and different. Like really, everyone's different. We are snowflakes in that way. Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> and thumbprints. Anyway. Yeah. But that's science. I, I do think that like when I, I've seen like when Fox News or mm-hmm. Fox Channel yeah. tries to have funny, it's not funny. And I've been around right wing comics and their humor it reminds me of the guys at my prep school I went to who I didn't like, who didn't like me. And like mm-hmm. their humor was sh- pushing me against the locker going, hey, Dick, hey, Dick, hey, Dick. That's funny to them. It wasn't funny to me. And I, when I watch their humor, I'm like, oh, right. So you just hate women. Got it. That's not making me laugh. And so I don't know if the conservative brain, when you, you attach that to humor, I just don't know how their humor is informed where I'd want to go see it. Right. So. What it, by that token, I know for Showtime, there's actually a Showtime crew running around here shooting something, huh. which is why the parking lot was and, and, and thank you for promoting my, <laughs> my thing. That's um, kind of you. But one of the one of the points you also made was that you wanted to do, film it somewhere where it was already your crowd. Yeah. What if you had gone the opposite way? Oh, like, and filmed it somewhere where it wasn't your crowd. That cause that turns into performance art. It's dis- that, that's that's punk rock. <laughs> yes, I guess, right. You know, I would not disagree. However. I'm there to do two sets in one night and have it get over the wall. Hmm. Do I really want to like see how well I'm going to do with the drunken heckler guy? Uh, like, I, and I've had those people, mm-hmm. especially during the Bush administration. They were just kind of laying wait, and you're like, oh, really? I mean, like, it's, this show's hard enough to do anyway, but with you and, oh. your, and your beer. Right, I, I remember there was a lot of supporting. You have to support the troops. Well, just that, you and know, if you say anything that might be against a well, war, well, I'm not against the troops at all. Uh, but that was that was the case with comedians in the Bush. Yeah, era. but I would rip on Bush and just like quote him. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, here's what he said, and they'll get out of my country. I'm like, oh, really, really? And so I don't. If you said, hey, we can book you in this place and just mm-hmm. kind of throw you on the bill and we'll see what happens, but it's this uh, Republican conservative enclave and it's probably going to be a little little sticky up there. You want to try that? I'd say no 
because chances are it's going to go bad. And I don't know if you want to watch that in an edit bay. I just don't know if that's interesting because I don't want to get distracted from what I really do want to say. So I'm not saying I need everyone to be with me and think I'm just groovy. Mm -hmm. What I don't need is to take time out of my little 65 minutes on stage to have an argument with that guy over there. And so I said I want an audience who's just kind of in the pocket so I can just do my thing and not have to deal with those three guys in the back. How do you – I guess the the ultimate, even if this might be the penultimate question, the ultimate question is how do you get your art to to reach those eight to 300 haters? Oh, I don't think those people can be swayed of anything because yeah. I, I live 24-7 in the adult mind. You can't – anything that I think is right, like the reality of global climate change – Bring me all your facts and figures. You're not changing my mind. Uh, women should get less pay than a man because this, this, and this. Bring your paperwork. You're not convincing me of anything. And so on the other foot, someone who thinks global climate change is a Chinese hippie liberalist plot to overthrow good, decent Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you, if that's what you think, there's nothing I can bring you that makes you go, oh, he was born in Hawaii. Like nothing I can do knocks you off Sean Hannity's shoulder. Mm-hmm. So I'm just – I'm not young. I need all the time I have left to use it efficiently. Adults don't really change their minds. And so I don't think I necessarily have to get my little show to like an angry right-wing guy like my dad. I don't think that's part of my mission is to sw- to flip that guy to – a more science-driven, global-friendly, progressive person. That's not why I get up in the morning. I get up to stand my ground and go, no, you're never going to flip me. You know, you're never going to turn me into a racist, and I'm never going to fear you. But changing that guy's mind? What adult's mind have you ever changed? Hmm. Yeah, see? Well, we're, we, after Anything after 25, you kind of are who you are. And it takes a major sea change, like a heart attack or losing your home to a fire or something awful that shouldn't happen mm-hmm. to make you go, well, you know what? I got to reconsider things. Like a stroke really changes someone's perspective or like losing you know, your, your loved ones to something catastrophic. You go, oh. I've had a a couple of very catastrophic things happen to me, and I – again, you have to go person to person. It changed my – it changed everything. I'm a much different person than I used to be after what happened to me. And I've had a lot of like – if a major catastrophe is a home run, I've had a lot of singles and doubles in my life where you're like, oh, man, (laughs) it's a good thing I don't like – Vodka, because I would have like emptied this place. Um, but I've, I, I had, you know, at least one event that was absolutely life changing, where I've never really thought about anything the same way again. Um, besides something like that, mm-hmm. I don't think adults real, and it didn't change my mind. It just kind of just ruined me for a lot of things. Um, I, I don't think the adult mind can be changed. Uh, if you look at you so, know, so it's just we have to just wait out the generation. Yes, uh, and I said on the, and hope for the uh, future of our kids. Yes, uh, you know as as they say, you know, teach your children well. I just think that going forward, twenty nineteen, going forward, 
I just think things like homophobia are just harder to make cool. Like, uh, you know, your drunken grandfather at Thanksgiving says all this stuff. And even the 11-year-olds at the table go, dude, like, what are you on? Like, even kids are smart enough now going, like, that's – adults can be wrong. Where when I was young, my I'd hear the big talk and you'd go, okay, well, yeah. You know, thankfully, my mom logic me out of it. But I, I just think going forward, it's those are going to be harder sells. And on the last talking tour I did – uh, I, I said, you know, there's going to come a time soon, not all that long, where there's, there's not going to be many people left to watch Fox News. Like that head, like when, when I heard Clint Eastwood say, someone said, well, you're racist. He said, well, because of this, this thing you said. He said, well, mm-hmm. when I was young, that wasn't considered racist. And I took that quote to the stage. I said, when Clint Eastwood was young, there was no such thing as penicillin, and they're still trying to figure out what this whole gravity thing is. It's been a long time. What I'm saying is we evolve and change. So what was not racist when you were nine, you and Abe Lincoln, in now it is. And now he's just a buffoon talking to an empty chair I mean, like, and not you know just bombing. Right. And so – I think the most important thing as an adult is just knowing when to cl- – you know, I was doing a podcast with a guy a while ago. He's old like me. He said, so what's our job? Yeah. And I said, I think our job is to get out of the way. He said, how about this? Our job is to clear the lane. I went, oh, oh, I'm, st- I'm taking that. Our job is to clear the lane for y- your young – all these new young members of Congress, all these brave young people who really want to go, go, go. My job is to vote. And to not get in their way, because I'll be in diapers soon, yeah. and so I can't I can't run with them. So I'll just uh, I'll keep the lane clear so they can slam dunk it. And I, I quite enjoy that. And I tell that to the audience. I go, look, you're all younger than me. Everyone in this building is younger than me. Fine. If I'm going to clear the lane, you can't sleep on the job. I'm going to take the shot. The guy's going to give me the elbow. I'll be Dennis Rodman getting hammered so the guy can score. I'll do it. I, you, nothing you can do to this face. It's all broken anyway. But you got to drive it. If I'm going to clear the lane, you better use the lane. Otherwise, yeah. we're both done, and this will all be for nothing. And so that's kind of what informs a lot of what I do these days is kind of embracing that, that I'm not 21 and I'm not trying to be. Well, Henry Rollins, thank you so much for continuing to be on the front lines. Thank you, sir. And thank you for taking time out of your workaholic schedule. Yes. <laughs> to yeah. spend some of it with and, me. And thank you for uh, generously and gratuitously promoting my <laughs> my newest thing. I do it so I cleared the lane. Oh, you did so I well. cleared the lane. Thank you so much, Henry. Yes, sir. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.